One of the many reasons we've gathered in this lecture hall today, or perhaps found ourselves in Iowa City to begin with, is that although we've felt the joy and angst, the dread and satisfaction of plucking away at the keyboard for hours in isolation, or of silently reading, or of scribbling alone in a notebook and falling into pleasingly interior layers of consciousness, we also understand that the writer's path relies upon conversation, dialogue, the sharing of ideas. At today's 11th hour, we're excited for Dora Malik to join us to discuss the importance of conversation and how it strengthens our sense of being a writer who might reach out into the world. Dora Malik is the author of two books of poems, Say So and Shore Ordered Ocean. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Poetry, Tin House, and numerous other publications. Dora was recently the director of the Iowa Youth Writing Project here in Iowa City, and this fall she'll be joining the creative writing faculty at Johns Hopkins University. Please join me in welcoming Dora Malik. Yeah, that should be good. Hi. Can you guys hear me like this? Does this work loud enough? Great. Fabulous. Um, thank you guys all for uh, being here uh, at the 11th hour. Um, I'm going to start essentially talking about this idea of um, conversation uh, in a place where I think every literary craft talk really needs to start, um, which is uh, with a reference to GQ magazine. Um, so it's obvious. I mean, you knew it would start this way. So uh, a few days ago, uh, GQ magazine insinuated that the actress Olivia Wilde was too good looking to play a writer, believably, in the movie Third Person. It's not believable. Not believable. Um, this was offensive and untrue for obvious reasons, um, and untrue, I mean, look around this room, look at yourselves, it's just, it's obvious. Um, and, uh, and Olivia Wilde herself is the daughter of journalists and a literate human retweeted, kiss my smart ass to GQ, um, smart meaning intelligent, obviously. Um, so we could spend the rest of our time here talking about uh, gender stereotypes until we're blue in our beautiful beautiful faces, um, but uh, I, I want to take us in a slightly different but related direction. Um, essentially related in that it starts with a re uh, preconception about writers um, or the writing life uh, and what that looks like. Um, so uh, the, the whole beautiful writer dust-up reminded me of all the preconceptions, uh, both flattering and unflattering, of writers in general uh, that are still culturally pervasive whether we've undermined them or interrogated them or not. Um, and that in turn re-reminded me of why the subject I'm discussing today, which is writing as conversation, um, is really dear to my heart, uh, and why I think it matters to focus on it explicitly. Um, and one preconception, this is the one we'll be focusing on, that is really a double-edged sword is that of, of the solitary writer uh, and the solitude of the writing life. Of Wordsworth's poem, uh, which is kind of uh, the essential poem of the solitary writer. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd 
a host of golden daffodils. Beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not be but gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft when on my couch I lie, in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. So it's lovely. It's un- there's something undeniably romantic, uh, both with a lowercase r, and with a capital R, uh, Wordsworth as romantic, capital R, um, in the image of the writer as a solitary figure. An individual, individual, not just one person, but individual, uh, with an individual imagination, an individual genius, creating his or her art through, as Wordsworth put it, the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings, influenced by no crowd but the daffodils. To be derivative, artificial, constrained by the influences of other writers was to be at odds with capital R romantic, capital O originality. And of course, lowercase romantic originality as well. Um, This idea of the romantic originality, romantic ideal of the solitary literary genius we might not always put it in those terms, uh, and we certainly uh, are, are open to ideas of collaboration and writing workshops and talking with other people. Um, and in a way, I'd be preaching to the choir, honestly, uh, if I were to say, hey, guys, you know what would be really cool? If you guys found a literary community. You're, you're here. You found it. You did it. You, you got, we're, we've all got that part of it. Um, in a way, I don't need to be here re-reminding us, hey, there are these cool things called festivals and writing conferences and workshops. That, that we get, but at the same time, behind that, when we're alone with ourselves and a blank piece of paper, we feel oftentimes like that's when our sort of genius is supposed to pour out, our creativity is supposed to shine, and often that's when the blank page looks really, really blank. So in a weird way, it's not so much, you know, we, uh, we need to, to, to make friends. It's this question of how do we keep that conversation going when, when, we, when we don't have other people, when we do have that solitude that's supposed to be our birthright, the best thing that's ever happened to us as, as artists. Um, so essentially, it's hard to shake the sense that if we're a true artist or a true writer, it's just in us. Never mind the lovely contradiction in the fact that somehow the powerful feelings of the romantic geniuses still spontaneously overflowed in received rhyme and meter, which ostensibly they they got somewhere. Um, So uh, I I actually love uh, following up this poem um, in my own mental conversation uh, with William Carlos Williams' uh, knowing take on this figure of the writer, the solitary genius, in his poem, uh, Dance Russe. 
and obviously very different tonally. Dance If when my wife is sleeping and the baby and Kathleen are sleeping and the sun is a flame white disc in silken mists above shining trees, if I in my north room dance naked, grotesquely before my mirror, waving my shirt round my head and singing softly to myself, I am lonely, lonely. I was born to be lonely. I am best so. If I admire my arms, my face, my shoulders, flanks, buttocks against the yellow drawn shades, who shall say I am not the happy genius of my household? So this is an artist, I would say, much more uh, familiar to us, which is the artist who takes his or her solitude uh, where he or she can find it, uh, which is often when the baby's sleeping, when the phone's away, etc., etc. So here, essentially, Williams indulges himself and us as readers in the fantasy of the romantic figure, um, which as we know from reading the letters of the romantics, they were always in correspondence, they were always in conversation, they were always reading. It is in that way a fantasy, a mythology, um, and a wonderful fantasy and mythology. Uh, and here he does it complete with romantic imagery of nature. The sun is a flame white disk and silken mists above shining trees, while simultaneously subverting and critiquing that mythology. Um, so he's engaging the mythology, conversing with it, acknowledging we're never actually alone in our creative process. Here he is not only uh, not alone in his, own, uh, in his own home, there's Kathleen and the baby and his wife, and you know we, know, we, we know from his life he's a doctor, there's patients outside, there's a whole community of Patterson that we know he cares about a lot, and yet th this fantasy is still meaning to him, meaningful to him of the solitary writer. Um, and it's something I don't want to dispel either. I want to engage with. In a way, I want to have a conversation with that idea. Um, when I, as, as a little side note, um, I started thinking about this topic, uh, as I think a lot of us do, uh, a, a while ago now. Um, and thinking about it most explicitly when I was in college, which I think, um, as for a number of us, may, may be where we first uh, start encountering what one might call, what Harold Bloom might call, not one, uh, the anxiety of influence. You know, the idea that, oh my gosh, there's a lot of history. Oh my gosh, there's a lot of literature. There's a lot of really great stuff that's out there. And how am I supposed to enter into it? Um, that also means it's often the time when you start writing your manifestos and making grand gestures to avoid having to deal with that weight. Um, so when I was in college, I decided, this is briefly, obviously, I decided not to study writing. Um, I was turned off by what I perceived as, uh, and obviously perception on my part, uh, I was seeing what I, what I needed to see at that time, one too many elbow patch, tweed jacketed gatekeepers. The idea of you have to read your Spencer before you get to read your Adrian Rich, you know? Um, uh, which at the time, obviously I feel differently now, at the time it felt like eat your vegetables or stay in your place or any of those other sort of commands or imperatives that don't feel good, um, especially for an 18-year-old gal who wants to make art. Um, so I, uh, in all of my wonderful naivete, fled to the visual art department 
as if there's no weight of history there, right? Um, so I should just get to paint stuff. Um, so uh, so I, f- I fled to the art depart- visual art department and I studied painting. I decided, I have uh, this writing, you know, there's, there's, the books are really heavy, I'm going to study some paint. So there a classmate of mine uh, was creating these really figurative, uh, these figurative paintings, but they were wild, they were out there. They were full of really brash colors, really kind of bold colors and these really bold, brash, wild brush strokes. Um, For any of you guys who have studied art, when you're thinking of figurative paintings with wild colors and brash brush strokes, you're probably thinking of a couple different movements in visual art that that might remind you of uh, and that that might be in conversation with. Um, So I'm listening in on this conversation and the painting instructor, and I I, as an outside party, heard as a complimentary tone, told her, uh, the painting instructor told her she was painting like a fauvist. Um, and she's, she said really defensively, I don't know what that, I don't know what that is. I'm, I'm just painting what I feel. Um, and, and she said that as if to make it clear that she hadn't been trying to pass off an imitation as her own original work. Um, and the instructor, of course, said that she should look at their work. She should go find the Fovists, go to the art library, go to the gallery, study it, and bring that awareness back to her own painting. Um, and she said, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I, I don't want to be influenced. I just want my ideas to be my ideas. So that was her protest. Um, and, uh, and what he said, he sort of lost his temper, and I thought rather cruelly at the time, um, for somebody who works with 18-year-olds and should understand this particular anxiety by now, um, said, uh, completely dismissed it, turned on his heel and said, you can't be naive again. Which, I was a little paternalistic, a little, again, back to the question of, you know, come on. Um, that said, hearing that was both terrifying and also really illuminating for me. I didn't like the manner in which that was delivered, um, but it struck a chord. I got what he was saying, that no matter what, I couldn't spend my artistic life running from the conversation. I had to enter into it. And not just, um, although definitely, in, in workshops and with peers and in conversation, but really enter into this tradition that was continents and centuries uh, beyond me in conversation and scope. Um, so essentially, uh, if I wanted to paint, write, create any of it, uh, I had to lose my fear and join the conversation myself. Uh, so Harold Bloom's book, The Anxiety of Influence, might be the first point of view to come to mind when thinking of this particular situation. Uh, but that fear, the fear of being derivative, unoriginal, overly influenced, following a trend, or simply in the shadow of one's forebears, um, really transcends one particular critical exploration or one particular anecdote. Um, it might not be either as extreme in its academic nature as Bloom's anxiety of influence with its sort of Freudian undertones, overtones, um, or, uh, or as sort of offhand and anecdotal as the you can't be naive again moment. Um, but all of us in our own way come to terms with, oh, how, if someone else has done it, what, what do I do then? Um, or how do, I be, how do I be original? How do I make that happen? Um, so... Essentially, even if not put as bluntly as you can't be naive again, these preconceptions about originality and individuality, these fears of influence are things we, not, we have to not only accept, but face, embrace, and engage with, not only in the abstract, but in our creative process itself. 
So essentially, I've come to see the process and craft of writing as an ongoing conversation, not forebears that have to be reckoned with, but conversation all the time. Anytime I put my pencil or my cursor or whatever I'm writing with, um, I am clearing my throat and stepping into the room, or I'm stopping to listen, one or the other. Um, and so this is essentially the, the, the gist or the meat of what I want to talk about because it's close to my heart, um, is that in this view of writing, the page is never blank. There is no blank page. The screen is never empty. The room is never silent. There are always other voices. I'm always engaging with them. And whether those voices are the voices of individual authors I interrogate or affirm, of traditions and forms I dance with or subvert, histories, peers, past selves, loved ones, philosophy, other genres, all of that um, is right there with me in my so-called solitude. Um, if you worry about being too obedient, too subservient to tradition um, in this particular outlook of mine, um, keep in mind that the pleasure of even the most formal poetry, even the poetry that we really think of as um, this is in the tradition, this is a quote-unquote received form, um, meaning we get it from somewhere, uh, uh, even in the most formal poetry, it's the constant push-pull of form, uh, meaning the line in conversation with the sentence, the, the meter in conversation with the rhythm, the rhythms of speech tensed against the meter or structure of a poem. Um, and I'm focusing in my examples on poetry, uh, but I would argue that the idea of the form or the tradition, the shaping that's coming from elsewhere, the influence that's coming from elsewhere versus the individual utterance um, is and should and can be uh, something that applies to all genres, that conversation and the push-pull of what are you getting and what are you uh, putting back into the world. Um, so uh, to switch over here, I'll hold uh, this next poem up. Um, so this is John Donne's Holy Sonnet. Uh, the Crash Course, which is... Uh, 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 shameful overview of what the sonnet is. You know, we know it's about love, 14 lines. Uh, there's the, the rhyme scheme in there. Uh, there's, and also, there's iambic pentameter, which is the five beat iambic line, meaning da 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 da. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? So, in the tradition, as readers, and our friend John as a writer, um, we're aware of this tradition. We're already in that conversation. We know that that's happening. Um, and so then, this expectation, what's already been said, essentially the form is something that's already been said, and his poem is a response, as it always is. Um, so I will start to read it, and then I will spare you, and I will stop. Uh, because, and, and then I'll read it again. Um <clears throat> Batter my heart, three and God for you, as yet but not breathe shine and seek to mend that I may... You want me to stop, don't you? Because essentially, uh, I'm not bringing Dunn's voice into the conversation. I'm only bringing the voice of the form, the received form into there. And what he does is, on, and what we all do, is on top of the form, he comes to the form, he makes him, you know, he, he pays his respect to the form, um, 
and then he can't obey it. He has to interrupt it. He has to write it. He has to say, but wait, this is, this is something else. Um, and this uh, is sometimes called in, in formal prosody expressive substitution or expressive variation. Um, he does it so much it can barely be called expressive substitution or variation in this poem. It's just an entirely other speech rhythm. Um, and when I read it, what I want you to do, hopefully, is to not lose that voice underneath of all of this, of the, the pentameter, that voice of the tradition underneath of it as he rails against it. Um, well, of course, paradoxically, uh, begging, begging to God to be, to be held, to be controlled, to be uh, made subservient. So that paradox is in there. Batter my heart, three-personed God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand or throw me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like an usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but owe to no end. Reason, your viceroy and me, me should defend, but is captived and proves weak or untrue. Yet, dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste except you ravish me. So essentially, um, uh, what I think is a, take is an incredibly sexy poem because I'm a perverse blasphemer, um, is, uh, and, and what someone else might read and take as just this absolutely just uh, religious fervor of Dunn, um, is essentially part of that pleasure is in there because we can hear both voices in the conversation and because Dunn knew to be listening for other voices. He's listening to the tradition, um, and one could argue he's listening for God, whether he's getting an answer or not. Um, so engaging in these conversations. While one feels the iambic pentameter meter of a traditional sonnet beneath the surface, the poem is a spoken thing is almost all expressive variation. The speech interrupts, disrupts, protesting against the meter, explosive emotion in a paradoxical cry to be bound and held. And the conversation, of course, need not only be with form, tradition, other writers, uh, though their voices will continue to unblank the blank page uh, if we let them, if we keep listening and answering. Um, in that solitary conversation, uh, solitary, not solitary, uh, there, there are other voices. Uh, in poet and critic Jane Ludy's essay, Memory and Communicative Space, and the most recent issue of the Volta, she writes that we, as supposedly sentient beings, cannot always choose how to remember. Memory is not simply a repository of elements that we can sift through and discard or fully navigate in therapy in order to reaccess trauma and understand its effects. To say, I remember, is actually a bold claim. It implies, a certain, it implies certain awareness of how a particular event is organized in the trajectory of one's life. However, incidents can return to inhabit us in the least imagined way. 
So I bring this up because it might be easy to say, well, I'm not really, I'm essentially writing, I'm writing out of memory. I'm writing out of uh, this other, you know, uh, really out of my life. It's not, it, it's not a conversation with the tradition. Well, okay, so essentially, first of all, there's still form, there's still syntax, there's the sentence, there's still how everyone else has ever used the sentence in the history of sentences um, to be in conversation with. So in that way, the sentence is its own conversation, syntax is its own conversation. Um, but also, there's our own tradition. There's our own past and our own selves and our own history to be in conversation with. So in this way, even the most personal memoir becomes a conversation between the impulse toward the bold claim of memory, recollection as, in a way, recollection, a really conscious gathering up and retrieving of the pieces of our own past, and, as Ludi is talking about here, the life those memories take on for themselves in, their unco- in, in our unconscious, warped by time and hindsight, you know, as surely as heat and water would, would warp. Um, so to, 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 to have that push-pull between I remember and how do I remember? What do I remember? What is memory? All of these larger questions pushing back against um, that, uh, what seems like that straightforward linear process of retrieval. Um, the conversation, that, that kind of personal conversation, of course, need not always be with our own past. Um, in Deborah Solomon's 2005 profile of novelist Jonathan Safran Foer in the New York Times, she writes, At first glance, there's nothing in the arc of Foer's biography, no cherished hoard of disappointments or losses, that might help explain the fecundity of his imaginative life. And this is all of our fears. What if my life wasn't interesting enough? Um, So what what if I didn't hurt enough? Uh, So instead, um, he has found... uh, We we either hurt too much and we're in the Ludi zone, or we didn't hurt enough and we're in the Saffron Fower zone. So essentially, uh, she writes, he has found his inspiration in the darkly fragmented masterworks of European modernism. Kafka, Joyce, Bruno, Schultz, and nursed a vision that seems inseparable from the destructive underside of history. Foer might be called a European novelist who happens to be writing in America. And so Foer says, both the Holocaust and 9-11 were events that demanded retellings, Foer said when asked about his preoccupation with seminal tragedies. The accepted versions didn't make sense to me. I always write out of a need to read something rather than a need to write something. With 9-11 in particular, I needed to read something that wasn't politicized or commercialized, something with no message, something human. Uh, and, uh, and Deborah Solomon goes on. Um, to judge from Forrest's fiction, his vision of human is tethered to the inhuman. His world is one of abrupt and unaccountable shifts between comedy and violence. Tragedy primes one for humor, Fower said, and human primes one for tragedy. They amplify each other, so yet another kind of conversation between those emotional, between those poles. Um, and then he says, and this is what I love, as a writer, I am trying to express those things that are most scary to me because I am alone with them. Why do I write? It's not that I want people to think I am smart or even that I am a good writer. I write because I want to end my loneliness. Books make people less alone. That, before and after everything else, is what books do. They show us that conversations are possible across distances. Telling and retelling require listening, a call and response, even if that response is a disagreement or a correction. 
James Wright's poem St. Judas, which I'll put up on the overhead, is obviously in conversation with and a retelling of the biblical story of Judas. When I went out to kill myself, I caught a pack of hoodlums beating up a man. Running to spare his suffering, I forgot my name, my number, how my day began, how soldiers milled around the garden stone and sang amusing songs, how all that day their javelins measured crowds, how I alone bargained the proper coins and slipped away. Banished from heaven, I found this victim beaten, stripped, kneed, and left to cry. Dropping my rope aside, I ran, ignored the uniforms. Then I remembered bread my flesh had eaten, the kiss that ate my flesh. Flayed without hope, I held the man for nothing in my arms. So that's a poem that's very dear to my heart, and I could talk about, I mean, this is also a poem that's in conversation with form, with the tradition of form. Um, It's in conversation with the Bible and what we uh, receive as truth. Uh, In other words, that Judas is beyond redemption, which he is here as well, but it really questions and is in conversation with the idea of what does that mean? What does that mean to be beyond hope or beyond redemption? but all that, so you would say, if I were to write an essay about this poem, uh, if we were reading as, you know, just as readers and not as writers, we would say he's in conversation with the biblical, you know, the biblical received uh, narrative, et cetera, et cetera, and with the tradition of formal prosody, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all of that's true. Uh, but weaving through that conversation uh, is, the, is the question of, how did he get to the poem? Did he sit down and say, do, 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 okay, I'm, well, he probably wouldn't do that before writing this poem, sorry. Um, wrong tune. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but essentially, uh, did he sit down and say, I'm going to interrogate the biblical narrative? Um, or I'm, uh, so we have an answer to that because he was asked about this in an interview. Um, so this is obviously a conversation with and a subverting of a fresh look at a particular familiar narrative, um, but one conversation reveals another in terms of process. In an interview uh, in the 70s, Wright says, when I wrote um, The Green Wall, which is the book of poems that this poem is from, in 1957, I was 27 years old. Don't we hate him? Um, no, it's great. Uh, I, could tell you, <laughs> I could tell you the kind of thing I had in mind I wrote a sonnet called St. Judas, and in that sonnet, I was trying to do two things technically. To write a sonnet that would be a genuine Petrarchan sonnet, so conversation with the tradition, and at the same time be a dramatic monologue. I got that idea. He just says, I got that idea from, I got that idea from Edmund Arlington Robinson, who has a sonnet called How Annandale Went Out. Uh, and then he says, do you know what went out means? Well, this is conventional hospital parlance uh, for dying. Uh, so-and-so went out last night. Annandale is a character Robinson had, had written about before, but this, in this particular sonnet, the doctor is speaking. And as usual, in a dramatic monologue, he's speaking to another person so that what you're doing is overhearing a conversation in which one person speaks and the other is listening. The doctor was a friend of George Annandale. George Annandale was an alcoholic who was suffering terribly with his death, and so the doctor gave him an injection. He gave him an injection which killed him, that is, he administered euthanasia. 
Um, then he gets drunk, and in the poem, he's talking to another friend of George Annandale's, and Wright says, what is he trying to do? And Robinson, great Robinson, leaves you hanging there saying, yes, what is he trying to do? Then we have my poem on Judas, who is, I suppose, the ultimate lost betrayer. It is a, well, I wouldn't call it a literal imitation of Robinson, but if I haven't, hadn't read Robinson's sonnets, I know that I wouldn't have tried to write that poem. So that conversation and conversation and conversation. Um, and I love to hear Wright say, Robinson, great Robinson, uh, as, as, I would, as I would say, right, great Wright. Um, and essentially, his intimacy with Robinson's poem, um, his listening to Robinson's poem, gave him permission. Uh, listening can give us strength to speak. In Kathleen Jamie's essay, Holding Fast, Truth and Change in Poetry, um, she likens the process of writing to a game of Mother May I. You know, Mother May I take one step forward, yes you may or no you may not, and the game moves forward. Um, and she, she talks about it as a lurching forward and asking permission to blunder into uncharted territory. Um, and is that authority within us? Is it, you know, where, where, do, where, is it, where do we get that authority? Well, um, we gain our own authority through engaging with the voices of our compatriots across the centuries, our literary brothers and sisters and ancestors. Why do I write, said Saffron Foer and could as easily have asked, how do I write? And given the same answer. It's not that I want people to think I am smart or even that I am a good writer. I write because I want to end my loneliness. Books make people less alone. That before and after everything else is what books do. They show us that conversations are possible across distances. These distances can be spatial or temporal across continents or centuries, continents and centuries. I often tell uh, my students that reading and writing, engaging in the conversation of literature, is the closest we've gotten at this point technologically to time travel. Um, we're actually uh, space and time technicians in some way. Um, because how else but literature do we know how someone was feeling at another moment in history? Um, you're not reading about Shakespeare, you're reading with him and through him. You're inhabiting him, you're inhabiting John Donne when you enter into that conversation with his poem and make that poem your own. Um, Ralph Ellison wrote in his essay, The World and the Jug, um, perhaps you will understand when I say that while one can do nothing about choosing one's relatives, one can, as an artist, choose one's ancestors. Um, and by that he means one can choose the conversations that are most important to us. Um, and in this case, just as somewhat of an aside, um, this was in a, a really interesting response that's in his book of collected essays, where there was a, essentially a white northern writer saying, this is, this is his lineage, this is Ellison's lineage, this is where he comes from. And he was saying, not, not so fast, you know? Don't, don't tell me who my literary ancestors are. Um, and was talking about, you know, what did I get from Hemingway? Um, why should I not be able to get this from Hemingway? Uh, that's, what's that's what's great about literature is uh, we can enter into this conversation where and how and with whom we please, uh, and we can choose that dialogue. Um, so uh, one can choose the conversations that are important to us. Um, that said, it can be easy, a la junior high, high school lunchtime, 
um, to narrow one's horizons by sitting at the same figurative table with the same writers day after day. If you really love that conversation, you know, it's good. You don't want to miss anything. Um, so essentially, uh, Auden... Um, uh, cautions uh, against what I, I call this an aesthetics of defense. Um, in other words, deciding what you like and don't li like um, and read and don't read as a way of making the welter of voices and influences more manageable. And this is that little kernel of the the old college self that, that was anxious about how do I how do I engage with all of it. Um, so in his introduction to volume two of the Poets of the English Language, Auden writes, um, and he's so snarky, I love it, too exclusive a taste is always an indiscriminate taste. If a person asserts that he worships Dunn, but abhors Pope, it's Alexander Pope, or vice versa, one suspects that he does not really appreciate his favorite. Oh, snap, Auden. Wow. Um, so essentially, another way that you think, okay, we get it, we get, you know, you, you're the boss. Um, but it's true. There's a there's a truth in there, um, and the question of it doesn't mean you actually have to like. I don't I don't love reading Alexander Pope. If, uh, I I like this quote so much because he's basically talking to me. I worship Dunn and Pope. I eat my vegetables with, but but essentially I learn from him. What is this heroic couplet? What's it doing? What does it mean to use this kind of spoken rhetoric? Um, in your writing. You, you learn even from the conversations uh, that are in that way dutiful or uncomfortable for you. Um, and Ezra Pound's poem, A Pact, uh, really reflects that potential in overcoming an aesthetics of defense. We'll switch to that over here. A lovely short little poem, A Pact. And here it's that direct address. I make a pact with you, Walt Whitman. I have detested you long enough. I come to you as a grown child who has had a pig-headed father. I am old enough now to make friends. It was you who broke the new wood. Now is a time for carving. We have one sap and one root. Let there be commerce between us. It's lovely. And I love that he still gets in a dig at him. I come to you as a grown child who has had a pig-headed father. You know, it's not like I'm sorry. It's uh, sorry, not sorry. Um, so... <laughs> But, but lovely, and, and, and the poems that come in this period of the pact, of a pact, really show in many ways that willingness to be influenced, that willingness to come to terms um, with, with Whitman, with what Whitman is, what he's saying, what he's doing. Um, so the conversation with ancestors, with traditions, with the present and past selves is ongoing. Writing is always a conversation. Uh, Frank Bedart's Odie et Amo poems uh, are touchstones and inspirations for me in this regard. So, um, does anybody sp do, can anybody read Greek better than I can? Uh, I, I cannot read it very well. That's <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh, Latin. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's yes. Obviously, Catullus Latin. Yeah. Um, can anybody read Latin better? We don't need to read Greek. Uh, you want? To, you want to come up here and read it? No, I can read it. I can say it loudly. Okay. Say say it loudly, and then I'll repeat so, it. Odi et amo, quare id faciam, cortasa laquiris, nescio sed fieri sentio et excrucior. Thank you so much. 
That's fabulous. Okay, so so Melinda saved us. I, I would be, you know, quarry, id, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, but point being, um, here we have uh, this poem from the Latin. We have Catullus. Uh, and um, then we have Frank Bedard in the past century. Um, and I put down the books and the... Um, the dates of those books, uh, because that's what's really fascinating. The poems themselves are beautiful, uh, and the poem, obviously, and as much as I can understand of the Latin, is beautiful, which is probably not very much. There are traditions there that are being engaged with formally that uh, I don't pretend to grasp completely. Um, but, okay, 1987, Frank Bedart sits down and, in conversation with the Catullus poem, he writes a translation, he writes a poem of his own, a version. I hate and love ignorant fish who even wants the fly well writhing. Love it. If I were Frank Bedart, I would be like, done, awesome, time for lunch, did it, wrote my poem. Um, and perhaps he did that in 1987. But he kept the conversation going. 1997, 10 years later, you know, or around, obviously it might take a couple years for the book to come out, um, but about a decade later, he returns to this poem in another book. I hate and love the sleepless body hammering a nail, nails itself, hanging crucified. So essentially, he comes back and he says, or maybe what I meant to say was this. And then, again, 2008, another decade later, essentially, he is in conversation with Catullus for 30 years, probably more. Maybe there's more, you know, essentially. So here he has, what I hate, I love. Ask the crucified hand that holds the nail that now is driven into itself. Why? And what I love is that, in a way, this is a conversation um, that in the way that the great conversations are, they become relationships. You're not trying to solve it and move on. You're not trying to solve the puzzle that is Catullus. You're trying to engage and engage and engage and come back to that Greek text that becomes a touchstone for you, a, conver- you know, a, a constant source of conversation in that way. Um, so essentially... Uh, and I'm, I'm finishing up here. I'd like to leave some time for conversation, obviously. Um, I think in some perhaps oblique ways I've already talked about how does this translate into uh, your own writing process, our own writing process. Um, and uh, in many ways this has been more a meditation than an instruction manual. Um, so the easy answer would be that I could probably have filled our time together just intoning read, 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 read. Um, and, uh, and, you know, get over to Prairie Lights, get over to the library. Um, but uh, in terms of some last sort of practical thoughts, um, I know we said, you know, Saffron Fowers saying I don't, need people to think I'm smart or a great writer. Well, you know, at this point, he's, he's published, he's doing it. People do think he's smart and a great writer. Um, so for the rest of us, as one, and I'm sure there are others in this room who have been in similar situations, who has waded through slush piles of journal and contest submissions, it's really starkly clear 
who speaks without listening, in other words, who writes without reading. Um, and sadly, those, those writers might be very social. They might be very engaged with other people. I don't know, because if they're not in that conversation on the page, if it's all one, direct, you know, one direction on the page, it's really hard to know the depth and breadth of, you know, of, of their internal life. Um, so in that way, uh, it, it, as I said, it's starkly clear who writes without reading um, or without reading broadly, deeply, etc., um, and who's deeply engaged in conversations beyond themselves, who's committed, and yes, I'm fine with this sounding like it has moral or spiritual undertones, who believes in something larger than themselves, the higher power of the community of the page. Um, and uh, this, to me, is important because I think we think got to write, got to be writing every minute of the day as opposed to thinking of these other aspects of the conversation besides our voice going onto the paper. Um, so keep in mind, uh, and I brought this up a little bit at the beginning, I keep talking about the community, the page, uh, and the conversation that means the blank page is never blank, not the kind of awesome, amazing, fabulous community we find here at the festival. Partly this is because I'm preaching to the choir, you're here, you do believe in that kind of in-person community. Um, partly though, it's because I actually do believe in being alone um, in, the liter in the literal physical sense. Um, there's a lovely July 9th article uh, um, on the New Yorker blog about Virginia Woolf, sort of a meditation on Virginia Woolf's idea of the artist's privacy and why that mattered to her, this sense of not a privacy like Facebook's privacy settings, but privacy like maintaining an inner life. Um, and the author writes, Woolf's abstract inner sense of privacy is indebted to feminism, to the realization that men, but not women, have long been granted a right to solitude. Um, so essentially, I, I'm not saying, I, I, I believe in community, this kind of community very strongly, I believe in giving, I believe in volunteering, I believe in teaching, I believe in being present, um, but in all of that, I'm not saying don't take that time for yourself. Uh, the problem is not solitude itself, which is valuable and necessary and for which most, most of us, um, men and women, uh, especially women, have to fight. It's the misconception sometimes that we get into of what, that, of what solitude is. When we're finally away from social media, friends, family, coworkers, and communities, it can feel like empty, frustrating, boring silence uh, that in some way uh, is a judgment on our inner lives, on whether or not we're really capable of being that solitary figure, that romantic ideal. And in fact, that's when the conversation I'm talking about starts. So essentially, don't be intimidated by where you start reading and engaging. Essentially, you're already doing it. Uh, in my humble opinion, the canon, uh, the Western canon, is all blasted open. Uh, there isn't a final authority on what to read first, second, third, etc. Um, let the voices overlap and interrupt, indulge and explore. Um, and as most of us are aware of or are becoming aware of, you're different throughout your life. And the literature you encounter changes with you in this kind of magical way. So to return to texts and dignify and listen to those past selves as well, um, as Bedart does or in many other ways, uh, will not feeling an allegiance to remaining faithful to a particular sensibility. Conversation with ancestors, past and future selves, peers and influences can be explicitly engaged as the beginning of Pound's Canto Two, which he starts out, hang it all, Robert Browning, which I love, or, or, or implicitly engaged, simply shaped by the presence of the company you keep inside yourself. 
The writing process is always a conversation, even if the mythology of the romantic or original still feels good sometimes. The next time you feel blocked as a writer, reach out, read, listen, engage, and empathize in solitude, and consider yourself hard at work, the happy genius of your household. Thank you. So we've got about 10 minutes if there are any questions or thoughts. There also don't need to be. It's not necessary. We've gone to the place of solitude. Yes? Just an observation that Wordsworth was drawing on Dorothy's journals, and she had written out about the daffodils, and he had consulted them, so it's always a conversation even for Yes, yes. Lisa's saying that 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 he that Wordsworth himself was drawing on Dorothy's journal, you know, drawing on the the her her sort of perceptions also exactly. And you think about, I mean, the the closeness of the other romantic of the other romantics, the amazing things that came in Keats's letters with his brother. You know, it's it really that in person conversation is absolutely valuable and I love that that it ends up being this web of conversations um, that the personal on top of the formal on top of the observed absolutely but yeah those those are those are always fun to me when you're like come on you know come on that's <laughs> we, we see you that's other comments or thoughts yes I just can't help adding to that I think Anna Karenina was written basically by Tolstoy's wife as well like she would take the manuscript and write so many notes in the margin that he would change it so much that the original was not even there. But yes. he was done with it. Yes, talking about Anna, the you know the woman behind Anna Karenina, and I love both of these examples are really pointing in a way to the mythology, and and perhaps I should have been harder on it. In a way, I didn't want to say, you know, these guys are frauds. You know, but but there is an element of okay. As, as writers, we can understand that myth. We can understand why these people created that mythology. And it happens in a lot of fields. And it can be both wonderful and thrilling and beautiful. And we love our words. And it's also pernicious in that way. And there are power dynamics to it as you're bringing up. I was reading something about the, the founders of Tinder, which obviously is not literature. It's an app. Um, well, I guess you could argue maybe an app is some kind of form, uh, but, uh, but essentially the, the, the woman who was one of the co-founders who's getting written out of the narrative, and it really, it sounds like it could be talking about uh, you know, some of these movements or traditions where the, the women are kind of pushed a little bit into the background in that regard. Um, so in a way, especially for us, uh, especially for the uh, female-identified folks in the room, um, it can be especially valuable not to just say, you know, boo to those solitary men, uh, you know, from throughout history, but to look at it and say they weren't, they weren't doing that, you know, it was a mythology all along. Um, and it could be a beautiful one, it can be a pernicious one, but as you guys are saying, it really is uh, that mythology. Yes? Um, I really appreciate what you were saying about the conversation as it relates to the artists themselves, like kind of on the page, that anxiety and influence you talked about in the room. And it seems like in writing, like you, you spent some time in visual arts, it just seems like in writing, the line is harder to, to find or to kind of delineate than in some other art forms, like in 
the visual arts core. I'm thinking particularly in music. Mm -hmm. I know in music, it's it's kind of a given that like all musicians, they look at their influences and then they incorporate that in their work. And almost like the majority of listeners can feel the influence and recognize it and say, okay, and I can tell right where it's veering off. Mm -hmm. And they can sort of accept things that fall within a certain range. But if it comes outside of that, they go, oh, went over the line there. I, this is not music anymore. This is noise, sort mm -hmm. of that kind of thing. But with, I find like on the page, it's a lot harder because we don't always, it's like how much of it do we actually put on the page versus incorporating it into our thinking prior to writing and how much of it do we actually want to convey on the page. It really, I, I agree with you. And there's something about language itself, maybe because it's the medium that we're like immersed, it's like a fish in water, it's the medium we're using for everything all the time, um, that we sort of think of it maybe as like this direct, uh, like unmediated outpouring, so we're more outraged or more disturbed uh, to see those influences and hear all of those voices. You know, we don't, we wouldn't, um, I don't know, um, a, a politician doesn't get up there and tell us his platform by like painting a picture about, you know, we assume this is his truth is what he's, even though we know that that's not true either. So in a way, I think you're right that it's about, that there's something about this medium of language um, that feels trickier in terms of individual expression, um, which I of course think is part of its great power and, and why Whitman's line, you know, I contain multitudes, is I think so su such a moving kind of uh, mini manifesto um, to, to kind of push against that conception. And you're right. I mean, in jazz, you know, you think about it's there's it's a it's a sign of respect. It's also in other cultures that weren't as romantic, you know, influenced by by that kind of lineage of, of romanticism. There are sometimes there is sometimes more of a sense of you're sort of showing respect by referencing or something like that, you know. So again, this is sort of a little bit to, sh to focused on a particular like cultural path in that way. Yeah. Um, I'm sort of a new writer, I guess, and a recent discovery is that it takes a really long time to write things. And so over this really long time where I'm working on a piece of writing, I'll also be reading a lot of different things and enter into a lot of different conversations, and they all find their way into this one. Thing that I'm trying to write, and I was wondering if you ever thought that there was something negative about having too many dialogues in one place where you're reading something, and you're like, ah, this person is really into like Prometheus right now, and like, oh, she just went to a museum and saw something about John Cage and the effect of chance in work, and now that's up. Like, if, if you get too many of them, and if it gets muddy, or if you should just not worry about that and just go. I would say, I mean, the short answer is I would say don't worry about it and just go. Um, and partly because I think then that's where the conversation with the past selves comes in. Um, you know, if, if then down the road, once you're in the process of revision on that piece, you look at it and you say, okay, does Prometheus need to be here right. or was I really excited about it at the time? You, you, get to, you, don't, you don't have to, you know, you can be kind to that past self who is excited about Prometheus and, you know, it's beautiful you liked that then, but maybe in conversation with the larger arc of the piece, it's time for it to go. But to me, that's, a, that's more a conversation of revision, um, you, you know, sort of seeing how, essentially seeing how those pieces are then in conversation with each other that were once in conversation only with you. Um, that said, I really do think that the bottom line um, 
is don't don't be afraid to be influenced. In in a way, I think that that um, that that letting all of the influences in in a way keeps you from the the trap that I think we fear of what if I read Auden and sound like Auden, or what if I read Adrian Rich and sound like Adrian Rich. Um, to to keep letting those multitudes come in, in a way it'll always be your voice engaging with those other voices. Um, so uh, I, I think that that, in get, to me it sounds like that's great and the more the, more the merrier, um, really. Yeah? I, I was just gonna add to that also, the, the reading a, a lot of all the different influences, I think what the writer is really looking for ultimately is a theme or something to talk about. And, and if, you, if you don't spend any time uh, checking out all the various influences that are out there. It's kind of hard to find the theme, the thing uh, that you want to write about in the first place. I totally, I totally agree. And in a way, I mean, theme, in a way, this, the, the, whole, the whole talk could have been focused around that, which is essentially the fear of the blank page. What am I writing about? You know, what, what is my, and either you're like, what I really most need to write about was, uh, you know, the, 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 history of my aunt who ran away with the circus. That's what I most need to write about. Um, and then you sit down and you're like, where do I, how do I do, how do I get the about into, into the page to make it happen? And so in that way, whether you really have your topic or your theme already, um, it can help, okay, so go read Faulkner or go read, uh, you know, various sort of picaresques that have to do with these journeys, you know. So go find who else is in a particular thematic conversation. Um, or if you really have the blank page and you're like, what do I write, you know, death, love, I don't, I don't know, you know, what do I do? Then, yeah, exactly, you go to those voices and, and, and listen, like you're saying, until, until you find your place to enter. Totally, for sure. I totally agree. Um, you know, I think that's actually a perfect place to end, especially because it's noon, so we have to end. Um, thank you guys all for coming.